Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, the self-appointed film expert, and joined from afar is my co-host. This is the first time we're doing this podcast not together. Laura. Laura, say hi. It's me. I'm in Palm Springs at a conference, so thanks for having me. <laughs> no, you stay alive. If they don't kill you, they'll take you up north to the Mojave Desert. Submit, do you hear? You're strong. You survive. Um, yeah, and this is a full spoilers podcast, <laughs> so we're spoiling everything in the book and the movie. You have been warned. The book and movie in question is The Last of the Mohicans, written by James Fenimore Cooper in 1826, long time ago. The adaptation we're covering today is the Michael Mann movie, which came out in 1992, starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Ever heard of him? This is a special guest episode. All our guest episodes are great, but we finally had him on after a bunch of delays, uh, mostly our fault, but this has been a long time coming. That's right. We have the co-hosts from Pat and John on their worst behavior, and we were on their podcast twice, so please look up our episodes, but we're pleased to introduce Pat and John. Say hello, boys. Hi. Thanks Hi. so much for Good having us. Hi. Good to see us. you. Thank you so much. We're, we're not in locations as exotic as Palm Springs, you know, <laughs> where the rich and famous of LA fro- frolic when they're bored of the smog. You know, they decamp yes. to Palm Springs and exactly. get it's... a mud bath and take Polaroids of uh, <laughs> the mirror house. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think it is referred to as like Hollywood's playground or LA's sure. playground or something. I like thought that. that was Epstein's Island. <laughs> That's disgusting. Well, it but was. But it's probably true. It, yeah. it, they're, they're, in the, they're in the market for a new playground. Exactly. And it's Palm Springs over has uh, so graciously uh, stepped up. <laughs> so. Yeah, Laura is a big, important person in her job. She's at a week-long conference right now in Palm Springs. But in between work, she gets to enjoy the beautiful location that is Palm Springs. So we're all jealous, Laura, but we're glad you could join us uh, for this episode. Thanks. I'm not that important, but it is fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Before we get into the analysis, Pat and John, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your podcast. Uh, John, go ahead first. Sure. Uh, so uh, my name is John LeMay. I am uh, an Aquarius. Um, <laughs> and uh, let's see, I, um, I'm a, currently a thir- in my third and final year of my MFA in creative writing at Syracuse University. Go Orange. Woo, um, nice. uh, I write poetry. Uh, and before I started my MFA, I was a high school English teacher for four years. So uh, I is sort of in the way that Laura, you are the self-proclaimed, <laughs> and maybe by others proclaimed uh, English expert. Um, I am I'm sort of that of our podcast as well, though I don't, I don't get to tap into it as much because we don't talk about books. Um, because in Pat's words, uh, we're not allowed to um, <laughs> because he can't read. Um, yeah. So yeah, um, I think that's pretty much it uh in terms of the the individual aspect of of me and then i'll let pat say something about the individual aspect of them and then we'll talk about the collective aspect of why we're here i suppose hi 
I'm Patrick Stanny. I'm an award-winning actor and filmmaker. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't laughing at want... that. I wasn't laughing. I, at that. I could give <laughs> no, you, you some applause give, if you, you want. Don't, no, no, you, don't, you guys don't have to give me applause. Um, I make. Fi- I have a production company, and we shoot uh, short form documentary lived-in content, as I call it. It's content with a painterly touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when I'm not doing that, I. Uh, I'm an actor, and I, I do stuff in the Pittsburgh area, and um, yeah. Don't shortchange yourself. There's another very important aspect of the of the, the three-pronged stuff that you do. I've done uh, – I'm a personal trainer, too. I'm a personal oh, trainer. hell yeah. Cool. And nice. um, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I have uh, – among my clients, there's a lot of uh, television and film credits, so – so, very, yeah, cool. very cool. So you're bringing that to. I've never <laughs> talked about that before, and I already feel terrible about talking about that. It's like I'm gonna dox my clients, but I'm not going to. Did um, you interview any of them before coming onto our podcast? So we have some hot takes or <laughs> interviews. No, 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 no. Um, he would never. And uh, what's up? I uh, I'd want to give a sh- actually a shout out to John because um, our show Pat and John on their best behavior. There's a lot of ball busting. But there's mm. also a lot of genuine affection. Yes. And I want to give a shout out to John, who is the editor of uh, the Syracuse Literary Journal called Salt Hill. And um, John gave me a couple copies when I was in Syracuse last year. And just now I'm getting to them. <laughs> and I'm going to bring them with me. And I've been blazing through them. They're really fun. Re- a lot of really great stories. And um, yeah, you guys should check out Salt Hill. Oh, fun. Thanks, Pat. Definitely. Yes. Thanks Salt for that Hill. plug. Net. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's we... re- really good. Honestly, incredible fiction. Really good stuff. I'm all about that. Yeah. We do we, we do our best. Um, yeah. Yes, and yeah. but Pat I mean, is... I'm going to steal all of them for screenplays, but the Salt Hill can worry about the legalities <laughs> later, you know. <laughs> yeah, I I think I think all all involved will probably be fine. Uh it's pretty 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 low rent, uh low stakes kind of stuff. Um, but yes, Pat is right. There is we have a podcast in which there is uh, no shortage of ball busting and no shortage of uh, of love as well of of ball. Um, I don't know. This is a family friendly podcast, cupping. so I won't get to. Yeah, sure, ball cupping. <laughs> um, yeah, we uh, we started this podcast in spring of 2020. If you can imagine such Dude, a thing, like Same. the week of. Yeah, yeah, um, and we. Um, uh, the podcast is called Pat and John, Their Best Behavior, and our tagline, it is it is the podcast, no, it is uh, the podcast in which two college friends uh, bond with and berate each other over the films and music they love, from Paddington to pop punk to Paul Thomas Anderson. So it's just kind of a way for us <laughs> to bring all of the film and music that we love, but also our guests love. Sometimes we're exposed to new things um, on the podcast, and we just uh, shoot the shit and uh, have a good time. That's pretty much it. Nice. Yeah, it's an incredible pod. We, Laura and I, were on it for their episode uh, favorite book to movie adaptations, mm-hmm. uh, Very which good was episode. a real treat. It's a really uh, good one. Yeah, Pat and John, I'm so sorry. I think I introduced your podcast as on their worst behavior instead of their best behavior. I was thinking of the Drake. Oh, that's okay. Song. That's fine. <laughs> no, I'm so. I'm glad sorry. that you thought about the Drake song. Because it's a that great. Is, yeah. It's a- 
that that Totemic is song that is on brand canon. with us yeah. yeah and like and you know what we actually mean when we say we're on our best behavior it's very much uh you know yeah yeah it's a I wink wink cheek. nudge nudge to the situation so you're you're giving the game away danny but that's it's probably good that people <laughs> know what they're actually signing up for when they press play you're not exactly. just a couple of good guys <laughs> that we are not we are many things but that we are not <laughs> Hot take. I like Drake. Now let's get into (laughs) the meat of this episode. So yes, we're covering Last of the Mohicans. The venison Uh, of this episode. Right, yes. The sinew Uh, of this episode. mm. (laughs) I have read that the source material is known as one of the first great American novels, uh, Mm -hmm. which was something I I felt honored uh, to read it, uh, to be Mm. honest. Uh, The synopsis, so it it's set in 1757 during the French and Indian War, otherwise known as uh, around the world as the Seven Years' War, when France and Great Britain uh, battled for control of North America. Now, during this war, both sides had Native American allies, but the French were particularly dependent on these as they're outnumbered in America. So, yeah, the novel most of the time takes place around Lake George, New York dealing with the transport of two daughters of Colonel Monroe, uh, Alice <laughs> and Cora, and who are intercepted by our lead character, Hawkeye, and also his uh, adopted family, Chingachgook, and his son, uh, Uncas. I believe I'm saying those names correctly. They're the titular last of the Mohicans. So, wow. Let's get into it. So, I want to know, Pat and John your first experience with either the book or the movie and your overall general thoughts on uh, both pieces. Pat, why don't you start us off? Fuck. Um, Okay. (laughs) Um, I really like history. Now I'm not one of these creepos that loves like secrets of the Nazi submarines (laughs) or like world war two or I don't boring. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. That's the real reason why you don't research Nazi history, is that it's boring. (laughs) I really love colonial history, and I'm going to tell you guys why. I'm from a little quaint Midwestern metropolis called Pittsburgh, (laughs) and Pittsburgh was the centerpiece of the French and Indian War, because... The Ohio River, which was a major, major uh, point of commerce, diplomacy, yada, 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 is, of course, at the banks of the Allegheny and the Monongahela. They create uh, Ohio, which was a very important place. The French built a fort there called Fort Duquesne, and that was taken over, and it was so important for the British to control the Ohio that they assaulted it and, and laid it to see, under siege, much like uh, the Fort Fort William Henry in Last of the Mohicans, and they created Fort Pitt, named after William Pitt, who, of course, Pittsburgh is named after William Pitt. So I was fascinated with this history because, um, you know, it so much, like, basically, if it weren't for the French and Indian War, we would all be speaking French, you know? You and if imagine? you know a little man named George Washington, or otherwise known as George Washington. <laughs> Who? Uh, yes. He was a legendary fuck-up in the French and Indian War. 
There's a great battle, the Battle of Fort Necessity, which is a fort about 45 minutes south of Pittsburgh, where he famously surrendered to the French because he was but, you know, a young kid. Mm. He got his fucking, uh, what's it called? He earned his fucking stripes in the French and Indian War. Um, and, you know, the British were kind of taking L's because they didn't fight like the Native Americans and the French did. The mm. French said, fuck it, we'll be in the trees, we'll snipe people from behind logs, we sure. don't care. But the British were like, no, 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 where's gotta, the open we, field? Yeah, we gotta stay in our right. formation. <laughs> where's the Where's the open field? Like, And, you know, the great. there's a couple great ambushes in Last of the Mohicans. Many of those ambushes also happen in the Pittsburgh area and turn the tides of the war. Obviously, the British won eventually. Spoilers. <laughs> but, um, you know, in the early days of the war, it was not looking good. Yeah. Also, me personally, I my ancestor's name was Thomas Cressup. And Thomas Cressup was a um, frontiersman in Maryland. He was a first-generation Englishman in Maryland. And he... Not only did he house George Washington, but he helped uh, Mason and Dixon create the Maryland border. And he was a famous frontiersman and a fighter. He fought both sides, was kind of a bit of a, a rogue, if you will say, and a very famous guy. Like he, he hung out with Washington, yada, yada, yada. So the French and Indian War is really in my blood, too, hmm. you know? Um, and, uh, and yeah. Um, so, so Danny, if you, if you want to edit all of that out, that starts at 17, uh, 20 and it ends at around 19, uh, 40, 43 in the, in the recording. <laughs> um, no, that's probably one of the best historical backgrounds that we've ever had for an introduction. I didn't know a lot of that. Yeah. 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 What else do you guys want to know? I, I know a lot about the French and Indian War. Well, well, I know a lot I, about front, frontier life on the on the 1750s. You have to understand, Pittsburgh was the furthest point west for the colonies. Wow. So it was like there was nothing mm-hmm. past Pittsburgh. Right. There I was didn't know that. Yeah. Nothing. There was Louisiana Territory, which eventually was purchased by the United States. But you have to understand, like, from the French and Indian War all the way to Lewis and Clark, that was it. Hmm. That was it. The point of no return. And if we think about one of the most famous happenings in colonial America, like the Whiskey Rebellion, which is basically agrarian force, you could call them blue collar, versus federal overreach, oversight, that has been happening, that tension is happening all the time in American history. It's happening right now. You know, all of this like, those guys in Washington, they don't understand me. They're like... The trucker convoys. That's That started in Western Pennsylvania. The Whiskey Rebellion was in Western Pennsylvania. That, to me, is one of the most... What's it called? The most emblematic of American conflicts, American themes... It was all here in Pittsburgh, you know. It was a. It was. You have to understand. It's like, it's like. Uh, what, what's the place um, in tomb, Tombstone? It was like the Tombstone mm. of the 1700s. Lawless people drank. They fought. There were it, it, back in Pennsylvania. There were trees 
We had like our own sequoias back then. Trees, t- poisonous snakes, <laughs> panthers, bears. It was like Vietnam. You know I, what I mean? That brings up a question that I had. So when we were watching the film, I wanted to know where it was filmed because yeah, I didn't not know. Not filmed so in Western was, PA. Yeah. I was going to ask. So I looked it up. It was it was filmed in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, I think. Did you notice how different the landscape was from what you're used to around No, the Pittsburgh it looks area? exactly like the pit the greater Pittsburgh area doesn't really look like that. But if you go 45 minutes south to like where I went to Cub Scout camp in Fayette County, <laughs> that's it's exactly what it looks like it looks exactly cool. like that yeah well and Very if you cool. go into upstate upstate new york as well upstate new york you know, too yeah yeah because michael mann wouldn't have like he would not have found he would not have picked a location that wasn't like as you know close to the real thing as you know as it could have been just because mm-hmm. of like his you know dedication to like the accuracy oh yeah we'll get to that dedication yeah michael mann this is truly a directorial feat but john yeah so what was your first exposure to last mohicans yeah so my first exposure was to the book kind of because we had um so on on my shelf uh i remember we had a bunch of i don't know if these resonate with any of you guys but um uh, the great illustrated classics. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. oh yeah. Which Pat would really enjoy because there are pictures on every single page or every other page. <laughs> uh, so they're like really like dumbed down uh, versions of classic oh, no, 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 novels. No. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know these. I yeah. just Google. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, and they have like every single. The, the print is is massive, and on every single page there is an illustration. And um, yeah, we had tons and tons of those, and we had one for Last of the Mohicans. So I, I, you know, I don't know if I read that one or if I read the Wishbone uh, Adventure uh, book. Uh, I was a big Wishbone fan growing up. Loved we were a PBS, Wishbone. we were a PBS family I because that show. we were poor and we didn't have any other channels in the house. Um, so yeah, so we I, Wish, Wishbone was on quite a bit, and we had the Wishbone books. Um, and the, the, the wishbone adventure, uh, series, um, the way that those worked was wishbone who, for those of you who don't know, is a Jack Russell terrier who also really loves books. There's like a, they're parallel narrative. So like, there's the stuff that's happening in like the, in wishbones world, like with his owners. And then that whatever is happening there will remind him of some sort of like classic novel or classic story. (laughs) So in the case of this book, which I believe was called Last of the Breed, like they all had like <laughs> titles along those lines. Um, mm. So instead of like kidnapped, it was like dognapped. Or instead of the prince and the pauper, it was the prince and the pooch. Um, so in this case, it was Last of the Breed. And I think like some like developer wanted to destroy like a forest or a park and like put a a parking lot there or a mall so that got that got wishbone thinking about like conflicts between man and nature or like conflicts between civilization so then that got him to think about the story of last of the mohicans and wishbone would always be the main character so in this case wishbone was hawkeye and anytime they would like describe Hawkeye, they would always like talk about his tail or like his four legs or something along those lines. Um, 
So that that combination of the two, I think I probably read Last of the Breed first, and then I read Last of the Mohicans, the bastardized, great illustrated classics version. And then I'm sure later on down the line, I probably read the actual story because I could actually like understand it to some degree. That may have been an abridged version still, but I at least got the main gist of it. Yeah, I really loved it. And then uh, probably when I was like around 10 or 11, I saw the movie, which I, and I think Pat shares this uh, feeling, I fucking loved this movie. I loved it so much. I like, it was probably like one of my first, if not my first R-rated movie. So Mm. that was obviously Mm. hella cool. Mm. Uh, I just, I loved like the, I didn't know it at the time, but I loved like the the scale of it all, the emotion of it all. I just, I loved this movie so much. Um, and also I grew up, and then I'll shut up in a second. I grew up in an evangelical household. So like there weren't a lot of movies that were like R-rated or like super violent <laughs> that we could watch because if they were super violent, they probably also had swearing and sex and nudity and stuff like this. But this movie really didn't have any of that. So like we could watch it as a family and, uh, yeah, it was just a, a, a it was on quite a bit in the LeMay household growing up. Could you watch The Patriot? Yes, we could watch The Patriot. I think there were some scenes that had to be skipped in that. I could be okay. wrong, um, but we did watch The Patriot as well. Oh, I was going to say that was one of my questions, too, was why? Because you suggested this to us. Um, so I was also wondering sort of, you know, your background with this. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no, I mean, this was like this is I think think for both of the for the two of us this is like one of our favorite book to movie adaptations like of all time nice. yeah and the movie to quote your letterboxd review john uh they truly don't make them like they used to uh this is just mm. like a full-fledged hollywood historical epic i mm-hmm. mean the only example i can think of of a movie kind of like it recently is dune like a movie where the studio just pours money into this huge expansive blockbuster but dune Mm -hmm. that's not historical that's that's sci-fi it's a little more accessible i would say for people um which is crazy to think that dune is more accessible than uh (laughs) history yeah but yeah this is you don't see studios pouring money into a big swing like this Um, no you could argue maybe ridley scott attempted to do so with the last duel last year but that obviously didn't do super well so i think it kind of like codified the fact that like there really isn't a market for it anymore or at least not presently maybe there you know there's an ebb and flow to these types of things but yeah the 90s were uh i think we could probably say with some level of certainty the 90s were a different time yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) for sure yeah you just had these these huge movies based on both original IP, which is very scarce these days, um, mm-hmm. but also you have these adaptations of old books that are full four quadrant big budget movies. And streaming these days, they're getting more opportunities to make the movies that artists want to make. But of course, streaming studios don't have the big budgets that studios have. And when streaming does have the big budgets, they give it to you know, prestige filmmakers uh, like David Fincher and Martin Scorsese, which isn't a problem, but I love those movies too. But it's just, it speaks to the industry today. Lore, our trusted co-host, what is your first exposure with Last of the Mohicans? Shockingly, as an English major, or maybe not so shocking after I reveal 
a critical piece of my education. Um, <laughs> I had never read this. I had never read the the great illustrated novel version of it. I had never seen the movie until last week. <laughs> and I think the reason for that is that as fantastic as my education through college was, unfortunately, I had a not so great English professor. So instead of reading like the seminal works of American literature, we sort of took like A through B or A through D, like yes or no circle, Mm. the right answer to the question sort of quizzes and watched like Ken Burns documentaries. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually have a pretty large hole in my American literature education, unfortunately, Actually, ironically, the best time I had with American literature was when I was studying abroad in England, and I had an American professor for my English semester, and he was great, Um, but that was for one semester, so I don't really have a lot of American literature background. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, my, my journey with this is pretty short. I have to admit, I did hit quite a wall right about when Hawkeye comes across the Huron camp and start. And then it's like right before he dresses as a bear. Um, I (laughs) hit quite a wall. Um, Pat, we should say this is in the book, not in the movie. Oh, in the book. That's right. I'm sorry. confused for a second. (laughs) (laughs) There's no bear outfit in the movie, which is a bummer. That would be kind of a fun scene. I think they could have done some fun stuff Mm -hmm. with that, Um, especially with Daniel Day-Lewis's approach to acting. Well, if you want that, you'll have to go to The Wicker Man. Oh, okay. (laughs) What about The Revenant? What about The Northman? Yeah, well, he doesn't dress up as a bear. Midsommar. Midsommar. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, that's the best bear costume. Uh There are a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of bear outfits in Hollywood, so I'm not sure why they decided to avoid this instance. Um, But yeah, so I did hit a wall with the book. I think it's purely because of the inaccessibility of the language, unfortunately. John found a great article that we can talk about a little bit later, but it talks about sort of the pre- Walt Whitman writing and the post-Walt Whitman writing. And this happens to fall in that pre-British language that Mm -hmm. we were still trying to shed as an American country. We weren't an American country yet. Mm -hmm. So, and this is pre, um, what's the the Johnson's dictionary as well, where like English and American literature completely split, which is, for example, why we have like an absence of you after OU and words like flavor and color and stuff like that so that's god (laughs) that's still like not happened yet so we have a lot of this sort of stilted british quasi-american language that's a little bit difficult to read but overall i thought it was really interesting to see a lot of like tropes develop in this Mm. book i think it's a really great text to look at when you're sort of searching for what american literature is and what it's trying to say I think this book is really where those ideas start to find their footing. So that's kind of, I sort of looked at it as sort of like a contextual piece rather than something I really, really enjoyed. Um, Mm. But I thought the movie was really fun and we can talk about this later too, but I think this is probably one of the greatest adaptations purely because of how different it is from the book. Mm. So that's my, those are my thoughts. More people die in the movie. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. Different people die in the movie. Right. Like opposite characters. True. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Michael Mann is enough of a populist to know that people aren't going to fucking read the book. You know what I mean? Yeah. He knows that two pages in, most people are like, not for me. Sayonara. <laughs> well, that segues beautifully into my journey. Uh, so oh. my first exposure was with the movie when I was eight. Now, I didn't watch the whole movie when I was eight. I caught the final... 10 minutes on TNT, I think. So here I was, the bright-eyed Danny, (laughs) not yet scorned by the world. And I turn on the TV, the beautiful score is playing, which is an Mm. all-timer of a score by Randy uh, Edelman and and Trevor Jones. All-timer, like top five. Mm. Um, And I was transfixed. And then immediately after turning it on, I saw uh, Uncas get stabbed and thrown off a cliff. And then Alice, I didn't know her name, but Alice, this young girl, <laughs> commits suicide. So I turn on the TV and I was just like, I was like uh, Danny Torrance in The Shining. I was just like, <laughs> uh, I was, I was covering, my, I was scarred from that. And for years after that, I had always assumed that I had just seen the movie because I had seen that part. <laughs> sure. But then when we watched it for this podcast, I'm like, oh, I haven't. I haven't seen this. This is crazy. This is a huge blind spot, especially oh, wow. for a film major. And also, I've been lying to people claiming that I've seen this. And, you know, I, I thought I had seen all of Daniel Day-Lewis's films, mm-hmm. uh, but that was not true. So it was great to watch the movie and to truly absorb the experience. Now, with the novel, how I consume the books for this podcast is I listen to them uh, via audiobook as oh. I'm uh, cleaning and breaking down uh, the stage. I work at a, I'm a stage manager. So every night it takes me about an hour to do these duties. And this is just not a book where you can listen <laughs> to it casually. You need to engage with it. And so I, I'm not an idiot, but I'm certainly not at the <laughs> intelligence level to fully comprehend the early modern English, right? Is that the technical? There's not uh, really a technical term for because English had been around for so long. It's yeah. just sort of the American dialect of writing, I guess. That's right. yeah. like proto-American dialect. I don't know. The, the American like identity really hadn't been formed yet at this point. And what we think of as American literature hadn't been formed yet. To the point where the, the, the book that I sent you the article from, um, 25 Books That Shaped America, it, it starts off with a um, an anecdote, which is a pretty well-known anecdote um, in the, you know, American literature circles. I think this British guy named Sidney Smith came to America, who's British. And then I think he went back to England and reported back Like he wrote something essentially like talking about how there was no such thing as a, as American culture. He was like, who reads an American novel? Like who uh, goes to see an American play? Like who reads American poetry? Like no one, no one does. Like there is no such thing as, it. and it applies that just is kind of like a microcosm of the entire state of like the American identity at that point. And yeah, the American dialect and American idiom. So it really is like this. Yeah. Yeah. American music. Exactly. So there really is like, it's this weird, like uncategorizable something like that. Um, Yeah. Like type of language that is really hard. You don't know what to do with it because like when you read Shakespeare, when you read early modern English, you're like, okay, I, I know how to read this to some degree or at least like I know how much I will or won't understand. And obviously you understand most of what you read, like, you know, from 1850, whatever onward. 
but yeah this is kind of like this weird thing where it's like i kind of understand it but also i kind of don't right yeah it's it's akin to shakespeare for me is Mm -hmm. that it's like i get the overall emotions and themes just the specific plot points i struggled with and i hit multiple walls i think the minute i turned it on uh and i was listening to it i said out loud to no one oh boy because uh, <laughs> i knew exactly what i was in for uh, after yeah. hearing just the first minute of the text so had to consult spark notes cliff notes on this one i feel like i'm in high school the day before a test or something <laughs> like that but yeah I, I struggled with the book it wasn't the worst thing i've ever read but to say <laughs> that i read it is a stretch because a lot of it just went over my head or washed over me and i had to consult some modern notes to fully comprehend what was um, going on and to comprehend uh, the differences between the book Mm -hmm. in the movie which there are many and Mm -hmm. this is these are the episodes that are really just rife with yeah discussion Mm -hmm. so we'll open the floor to you guys pat and john what's the first major difference between the book and the movie that you'd like to discuss how about john we'll start with you well so the big difference is I mean, just a lot less happens in like the the plot is far, far more streamlined in uh, the film version because the film version is really it's an adaptation of the book, but it's also an adaptation of the 19, I think, 32, 1936 uh, version, which Michael Mann saw, I think, as a young person and was really struck by. So like a lot of the changes that happen in the movie are like changes that were already made in the 1936 version which was of there's just like more it's more of like a pop artifact i guess like a pop culture artifact um so like the romance between hawkeye and cora is not in the book um originally there's actually a romance between uncas and cora in the book that i think is hinted at or maybe developed maybe by the end of the novel there's also a another character in the uh, in the novel. I think David, David, not Mammoth. That's the playwright. Gamut. Gamut. David Gamut. David Gamut. Okay, I was on the right track. Who's like a singing school teacher of some sort? Um, <laughs> who like leads the gang like in choruses of song every now and then? Um, yeah. That character is totally nixed for the sake of the movie. Um, and he plays like a pretty heavy role in the book to my uh, to my recollection. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that like also like a lot of, like th- that that first like main like ambush that uh, Magua and the is it the Hurons or the Mohawks? I can I can never keep track. Of I think who. it's the Hurons. It's Hurons. the Hurons. Yeah, but there are like two names that they use for the Hurons, but I'm pretty sure it's his. Yeah, that that doesn't start off the novel. Like that happens way, way later. Or maybe like, maybe it's like kind of like a second. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah the, 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 the way that like Magua and like the Monroe sisters, like the way that they kind of like... Um, experience their conflict is in a is in a much like lower stakes kind of way uh, i believe um and like at, in the beginning and then later on 
after he leaves, then there's like an ambush that happens. Um, but for the sake of Last of the Mohicans, it's just it's very, very zippy uh, for the movie. I mean, it's very, very zippy. And like that happens pretty much right away. And yeah, th- I mean, there's there's a lot more. But that, those are those are some of the big ones that, that come to mind uh, immediately. Yeah, the overall structure of Hawkeye, Janachkuk, Uncas, and uh, Duncan Hayward transporting mm-hmm. Cora and Alice to Fort William Henry, and then from there trying to escape the Hurons. That's that's all kept um, mm-hmm. in the movie, and that, that comes from the novel. But yeah, little details are are changed for the movie. I think up until they go to Fort William Henry, it wasn't really working for me because like the book there's there's a lot of stuff going on a a lot of there's a lot of you couldn't just vibe with them hunting the deer no because (laughs) that's like that's like a masterpiece in itself with the smoke him looking at the deer and then the prayer after i mean that's masterful filmmaking it is but i'm a big plot guy and i i would argue that there's really it felt meandering to me until they went, got to the fort, and then there's a clear A to B path that they were going on. I, I, I couldn't really grasp both the book and the movie in, in that regard. I felt that once they finally get to the fort, then it became easier <laughs> to understand. Maybe mm-hmm. that's why I liked it. Um, but yeah, it, it's a tad confusing, but the, the opening fight when Magua betrays the British and then attacks that it's interesting that this movie is very um, violent, but the amount of blood is low. So it's, it's earns its R rating, but it's not like explicit. Yeah. It's not overblown like Tarantino violence, which is like a a cartoon, you know, where people are gushers. Uh, (laughs) They're surprisingly, even when people are shot, you see the squibs, but there's no plume of blood. So it's kind of exists in this weird realm of that. It's not sanitized violence, but it is violence that actually younger kids can probably take easier uh, than say tarantino violence i would say it's it's not tarantino and to and to use kind of like something that's even more like in that world and a movie that came out i think three years after um it's not braveheart right like Mm, that is a movie that really like there there's blood in that movie and like every everything is shown like with some level of like anatomical accuracy or probably it's probably overblown to some degree and yeah this movie is like it's very understated in a lot of ways like there are ways where they really could go for like the super i don't know high octane violence or even like the battles and the fights but i kind of like the way in which this movie like holds back in a lot of ways and doesn't go for i don't know doesn't doesn't like it's interested i think more in like the emotionality and like the composition of like the scenes and the relationships Mm. um and i think it does so without really needing to like hammer home like how violent this is yeah i think it's interesting that you bring up the emotionality of the movie because the book is the opposite speaking Mm -hmm. of differences i guess we should mention that this is part of a series of five books this is book two of james fenimore cooper's leather stocking tales Mm -hmm. which all revolve around hawkeye slash natty bumpo's adventures in the american west and part of i think 
Cooper's journey to find this character or find the American identity was his development of Hawkeye as a very emotionally cut off figure. And so there are a lot of uh, people who have, I guess, written about these books and they think it's very interesting that there's some kind of sexual elements and like lustful elements sprinkled through about Korra, but there's never a relationship that's developed between her and Hawkeye specifically because Cooper wanted to develop him as a very like hardened backwoodsman. And that really goes into a lot of like masculinity, male masculinity in America. Like that whole identity comes from a lot of these Mm -hmm. ideas. But I think the right thing that the movie does is to develop that relationship between Korra and Hawkeye, because I think it makes them a little bit more identifiable and accessible because Hawkeye's not, he's not supposed to be someone that you identify with. He's supposed to be this sort of like God of the wilderness um, Mm -hmm. in the book, but it makes it hard to identify with that person, especially as someone who doesn't identify as male. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's really hard to connect with that character. So I think that the movie does a really good job of like grounding these characters a little bit more and making them less of a trope and more of like a, you know, a storyline that you can follow and you can kind of like match your emotions with. (laughs) Yeah. And you can have your cake and eat it too, because it's not necessarily a complex romance it's kind of like a romeo and juliet thing where they meet and they they're kind of immediately in love but this this type of love is universal like people without that relationship i think the movie would be a little bit well depressing because it's you know about a war um and Mm -hmm. native americans being wiped out but like it's it's your footing into the st- your emotional footing into the story. So it's not just mm-hmm. about a war. It's you also have this. Um, it, it's interesting. Back in the days of Siskel and Ebert, when they were the the biggest uh, critics around, mm-hmm. R.I.P. to both of them. Uh, yeah, they famously disagreed about this in their review. Uh, Siskel was pro the romance, saying that mm. it helped make the movie uh, warmer. Whereas Ebert thought it was very cheesy and forced. And he, even though he recommended the movie, (laughs) yeah, even though he recommended the movie, that was a big criticism against it, that Michael Mann should have geared more towards the book and have it be more adventure as opposed to a love story. So that's interesting. Boy, if they watched the the new slate of movies every week in this godforsaken landscape, (laughs) they'd be fucking begging yeah that's true for last of the mohicans <laughs> begging <laughs> true yeah well i i saw like where's michael mann who's like he man he hasn't he, he's not working he makes he makes a show for a streaming company that's owned by a telecommunications company that two people are gonna watch starring the worst actor in history <laughs> Ansel Elgort. yeah right <laughs> wait what? pat are you forgetting black hat in 2015 Black everyone's not bad. Black hat's not bad. <laughs> it's all right uh john you're you're about to say something um well, no i just i remember it's just in terms of yeah and like what what michael mann does with with the movie in terms of like yeah how how he adapts it i remember reading a review it might have been like one of the reviews that was cited on wikipedia but it refers to it as like a glam opera i think it refers to the movie as a glam opera which is like an interesting 
term. I, I'm not entirely sure exactly what it means, but it, it feels right. And I think what the movie does in terms, yeah, in terms of adapting it, I think it's actually pretty similar to what Joe Wright does with uh, a, a movie that you have discussed on this very podcast, Pride and Prejudice, in terms of like really making it more of like a pop, pulpy sort of artifact yeah. As yeah. opposed to like the more like understated, but isn't that okay? I think it's great. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think I think it's why like we I mean mo- mo- hot take books and movies are different things. Yeah. Um, that's what that's what Oops. Peter Jackson does with Lord of the Rings. Like you know we need we just go to the movies for different things, especially these big you know epics or these operatic like feature films. Like we 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 need something. We need things that are gonna play on the big screen. And I think, yeah, I, I I'm glad that that Michael Mann made these changes. Um or at least that the 1936 director made the changes that Michael Mann then also, you know, made and updated and sort of uh you know sanded off the the rough edges of. Right. And it's important to note that since the movie is both an adaptation of the book and that 1936 film. The 92 film technically has seven writers. Um, <laughs> so you have James Fenimore Cooper, which is who wrote the source material. Then you have the three writers of the 1936 movie. And then for the 92 movie, Michael Mann and Christopher Crowe adapted it. So yeah, that's... Uh, that's what we call citing your sources. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and it ha- I'm just so amazed because this has all the markings of a flop. It's a an historical epic. Uh, the budget was ballooning during production. Producers at Warner Brothers were not happy with Michael Mann. It was pandemonium <laughs> on set. And this is not necessarily accessible setting and uh, story for mass audiences. But it was a modest hit. It, its budget was $40 million, which I doubt... I honestly doubt that, knowing the backstory, but it made $143 million in 92. So that's mm-hmm. that's a hit. It's a bona fide hit. I'm thinking of the shot of the massacre after the, the Fort William Henry surrender by the British, where the camera, it's a it's a oneer. So I'm a film major. You know I love those oneers, <laughs> where it starts at the column and it slowly pulls back. And there are hundreds of extras and the Huron Native Americans attack this column and there's there's extras shooting guns and fighting and you you just don't see these these epic swings um, anymore. So I was really swept up by that. Uh, all the action uh, once once you get to Fort William Henry, I think that's when this movie really moves. It, it won me back. And of course, it's anchored by a great villain performance by Wes Studi. Is he a villain? Yes, yeah. Oh, oh, exact. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's another another magic trick that Michael Mann pulls with his movie is that at all times you view Magua as a villain, but also you completely understand his side mm-hmm. and you support him even though he's killing people yeah i think killing and murder and death uh were thought of differently back then sure yes especially during a war everybody had a high body count right yeah it's interesting because this kind of brings us up against one of the major criticisms of the book in the movie which is how james fenimore cooper handles race and indigenous people and is is Hawkeye is just is a character to make the Native Americans palatable. Exactly. He is a white 
person who was raised by an indigenous community. And so he speaks on behalf of them. And I think that's on one hand, very frustrating for people in a modern sense, because it's like, well, you know, why don't we approach these things through the perspective of the people who actually have that lived experience? Um, However, something that I really liked about that chapter that again, John sent us to prepare for this recording was that we do have to remember the context and it's very sticky territory when we start talking about, you know, when these people were writing, because racism is obviously never appropriate, but the idea that this is a step into a story with Native Americans who have very complex backstories and who at times are given very respectful um, portraits that I don't think were around a lot before this book. Yeah. Um, We have a lot of very touching moments, especially after Uncas dies. And I cannot pronounce Chingachgook. Chingachgook's reaction to his son's death is extremely touching. Yeah. And I'm currently, I've been reading this book for like a year but I suggested to anybody who's interested in like sort of deconstructing American culture, it's called the end of victory culture. Hmm. And it talks about how, you know, non-white people have been set up to be the other since yeah. basically the beginning of time and how that plays out in indigenous cultures and Japanese cultures and Vietnamese cultures through different American wars. And it's super interesting, but you also get a lot of those hallmarks of when Uncas sacrifices himself for Korra, that's sort of that idea that like, oh, the indigenous life can be thrown away. Right. But it's like the white lives that really are the ones that matter. So you do get those perspectives as well. And in the 1992 movie, it's just as problematic. But you do have some touching character stories and stuff with indigenous people so it's it's back and forth yeah it's kind of a situation where it's like it's as good as it could possibly be you know yeah, like for, for the, the time, time. Yeah. yeah and yeah. i i read uh the but they're also great interracial couple i mean i understand that it's probably not the best for me to speak on these things but what what's about the they're a great interracial couple and he's like no I, i'm gonna fight for you I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it's great that in the movie, they like never, it's just like they like each other, bada boom, bada bing. Oh, I was, I read the um, the introduction to the um, the John Harvard Library version, uh, which is by Wayne Franklin. And he talks a lot about the process of writing this book and writing these stories and just like how much Cooper really did his homework, like in terms yeah. of like, you know, trying to write with reverence for what he was writing about. Um, and like he took, like just yeah, painstaking steps to ensure that he was yeah that he was conveying it with with accuracy, at least as much accuracy as as could you know as could be done because he was and this is this um, Thomas C. Foster talks about this in the book uh, the chapter that I sent to you, but like he was a romantic like in the, in that he was not a realist like so he was really like trying to capture a sort of like emotional mythic you know, whatever component of, of these stories that he was trying to, you know, trying to capture these stories, like with a mythic component. So as much as could be done, like he really wanted to make it, yeah, to make it as um, accurate and respectful to the communities he was writing about. But of course, like, 
there is that sense of the other that just could not be, you know, eradicated, um, you know, on his end as, as he was writing, just because the entire like premise of just the, the project of being white at the time, you know, was, was based on the sense of the other, whether that relates Mm to um, indigenous people or African-Americans or, you know, anyone else, essentially. Definitely. Yeah, I get that. And the irony is, is not lost on me that at least I think this is what Fenimore Cooper was trying to convey that you're talking about Uncas's sacrifice. And it's like how he's indirectly killed in service of white settlers and then and pretty dang directly the reason why the by the Mohicans can't continue on. And I think that's a it's an interesting twist how I was always thinking that either Uncas was going to be the titular last of the Mohican or even Hawkeye, which would have been problematic since he is white. Yeah. But then the very last scene, there's a mic drop of like, no, Chinachukuk was the last one. Yeah. And now he's really the last because he's older. There's no more natural born women Mohicans to wed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it, like this is, this is it. And although I wish I wish in the movie there was more Chinachkuk. I don't think there is m- many scenes or, di- frankly, dialogue with him a- as there could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, it does make for an interesting mic drop, which which I really did appreciate. And I and I think Michael Mann serves Fenimore's uh, Cooper's point mm-hmm. um, with that with that final scene. It does feel a little truncated uh, and abbreviated to just go from this. Uh, you know, they just killed Magua. And then they're, they're looking over in a cliff. Yeah. And then it ends. You know, like, whoa, we're not going to sit with this a minute. We're just going <laughs> to cut to credits. But at the same time, I've said this before. I'll say it again. Movies should be two hours. <laughs> um, uh, anything less or more is, is pushing it for me. And this is like basically almost two hours on the nose. Yeah. The original cut was three hours. And maybe this is the only point where I think studio interference might've been good for the movie. I I can't, that's blasphemous to say, but I I think three hours would have been way too much uh, for this story. What does everyone else think? I'd watch it. I'd be very curious with a three hour cut. I mean, I would probably, I want to watch it. Yeah. I love this movie. Like I, I think I I do agree that the, that the 40, the Mm. last like 45 minutes, like really, really whip. Um, I think it's just like pretty much it's all it's all bangers after after the four. But I also think it's like almost a perfect movie. So like everything yeah. up until you know Fort William Henry. Also like I'm I'm gobbling that shit up. Um, so I would probably be okay, you know, with another hour tacked on. But it all depends on what that hour um, uh, contains. If it's you know like the weird ass scene in the book, which is another thing I totally forgot about, where like. Uncas is like being he's like being held captive and then like the David Gamut the character he like disguises himself as Uncas and then it's Hawkeye so comes at, in in a bear costume and then Uncas wears the bear costume and they he like leaves. do a little switcheroo it's a yeah it's a you know if, I if, could not follow <laughs> yeah Nor could, if you couldn't follow it i <laughs> certainly could not follow yeah so it. If, if if we're talking that scene if it's like you know 45 minutes dedicated to just that scene maybe maybe take it or leave it um 
But I don't know. There's also another scene where Chingakshuk uh, dresses up. There's like a scene with a um, where like they're. I think maybe it's Magua. Some other characters are like talking about something, like talking about some sort of plot. And there's the, the a lot of text is dedicated to this huge ass beaver that's like <laughs> at the pond. And then at the end of the scene, after they leave, there's a reveal that the, the beaver takes off its head. And it's actually just Chingakchuk in a beaver costume. <laughs> um, so yes, I don't know. I Whenever would love to make s- this movie. I'm putting that in. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe that if that's it's, contained in the three hours. Yeah, I'm, it's I'm very it. um, it's very 007. Like he has a couple times where he pops out of an alligator costume, awesome. and it was very similar to that. Yeah, yeah, we love it. More of that yeah. in movies. I don't know if any of that was in the original three-hour cut. Um, it doesn't seem like Michael Mann's <laughs> style, but sure. who knows? We'll never know. We won't. Oh, that's another reason I was trying to list off all the reasons why the movie should have been a flop is because usually when there are multiple cuts of a movie, mm-hmm. that when a studio disagrees, that usually signifies yeah. flop. I Good mean, Heaven's Gate, big example. The biggest example is Blade Runner. That mm. has five cuts six if you count one on a special edition dvd so it, it's it's insane that this movie was able to prevail despite some big disagreements sure the world was ready for the arrival of mr day lewis yes hot off the tails of winning his oscar for my left foot mm-hmm. he, he had mostly been in these indies prestige movies and that this is a prestige movie as well but he this is his I think first foray into your classic handsome leading man who's super tough and buff and mm-hmm. it, like sexy and running around with two uh, <laughs> Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania rifles yeah. and shooting them both at the same time. I mean, that's that's very historically inaccurate to do that. But man, does it is it like the coolest thing I've ever seen totally. <laughs> when he does it in the finale. And the, oh, yeah, the hair. Talk about his, yeah, he's like sex idol all the mm-hmm. way yeah that flowing hair yeah it's the poster yeah. yeah that's the poster yeah him, him like lunging at the screen he looks like tarzan yeah yeah but i was gonna say we should talk about the way that he prepared for this role because it's very you know not not titular but it's very classic day lewis the way that yeah. he got into this character Danny, I know you know more about it than I do, so take it away. <laughs> well, Jared Leto wishes he was Daniel Day-Lewis, am yeah. I right? Yeah. Are we all in agreement on Jared Leto? I used to not what's be a the, Jared Leto. What's the what's the what's the take? Uh, I don't don't, care for don't him. like him. I, don't think I, I he's used a good to. Actor, yeah. I used to not be a hater, so I don't even. That's I, a double I, negative. I, I don't I, think I've ever seen a Jared Leto film. Blade Runner twenty forty nine. He's in that. Suicide Squad. Oh, I have seen Blade Runner 2049. Um, Dallas Buyers Club. No. The Little Things. Oh, I really like uh, 30 Seconds to Mars. I, I was really going like to say, their, that's, their, their, yeah. Yeah, I really like their, the, go break me down. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a great song. Yeah. All right, I like him. He's good. <laughs> well, as a, as a singer, he's, he's fine. Yeah. But yeah, let's get off Leto. But yeah, it's your classic method acting. Uh, your Daniel Day-Lewis. He reportedly spent six months before the production of the film living in the forest and not using modern technology and just being in the North Carolina uh, Blue Ridge Mountains, living like 
a settler, like a scout, and doing all the hunting and gathering. And, and during production, he stayed in character as, as he's wont to do with all his roles. Mm-hmm. But the production itself was so tumultuous and tough and demanding that I think you don't see Daniel Day-Lewis in a big blockbuster after this if I'm not mistaken. You see him in these big prestige movies, mm-hmm. but he's never, he never, I think he lost all interest in being a leading a hero moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, to be honest, I'm surprised he took this role to begin with because he was always a prestige actor. I mean, again, he had an Oscar. So yeah. perhaps his agent was like, Michael Mann wants you in this movie, but I, yeah, who knows? But <laughs> yeah, no, it's just full, full on commitment he feels like a real person of this time. It's not anachronistic or anything like that. Although it is funny just knowing who Daniel Day-Lewis is now. And like we just watched Phantom Thread too, to like have him say these heroic lines of like, I'll yeah. find you. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Like, stay alive. <laughs> Survive, it, you're just, a survivor. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was funny at the time, but it, it, it is just funny. It's like, you know, to see Daniel Day-Lewis doing that stuff. I, yeah. I don't know. It's... Yeah, do you feel the same way, his, John? His one-liners in this movie are fucking, like, chef's kiss. Uh, my favorites uh, are as follows. When Cora, played by the uh, wonderful Madeline Stowe, mm-hmm. she says, uh, he, he's, he's staring at her at one point, and she sees him staring at her, and she says, uh, what are you looking at? And he says, I'm looking at you, miss. <sighs> Incredible swoon there's yes. the the moment when the 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 um colonial militia men are they're all plotting to leave fort william henry like in the in the dead of night and they ask him if he's gonna if he's gonna come and he says no and they say like why not and he says uh i've got a reason to stay and the reason is of course uh cora uh and then uh what's the last one? Oh, and on a similar note he so he stays and then he they find out that he was part of the plot to leave Fort William Henry that he helped the militiamen leave Fort William Henry and so he gets thrown in jail and he is most likely going to be um uh hanged if he if they you know when they get back to England or whatever chorus essentially says like why didn't you leave and he said because what i'm interested in is right here <sighs> that's a pretty good line yeah wow good lines that's a great uh, line. Reynolds Woodcock uh, would 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 never. He would say a lot of other great lines, but of a different of a different tenor. What a hunk! Yeah, and his great adversary. I think this is a great time to talk about him. I brought I mentioned him earlier, but Wes Studi, mm-hmm. who, when this movie came out, there was talks of best supporting actor, best supporting actor, but the only Oscar that this movie was up for was best sound, which. I mean, wow, cool. that's really shocking. Yeah, and it and it won best sound, but it was the only a clean sweep. Uh, yeah, right, <laughs> it, exactly. But I would I would guess like costume design, score, totally score, adapted screenplay, adapted yeah. screenplay, cinematography. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I I completely agree. Best supporting actor. I was even really impressed with the the French lieutenant or the general. I really liked his character i thought he was really believable and Mm. like devious but also i kind of loved the complication that he really did mean for the surrender to be genuine but then when he talked to magua he was like 
ah, fine. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I really yeah. liked the complexity. The French of his are character. so complicated, aren't they? I right. We are. It's true. We <laughs> yeah. are. We, uh, which is kind of true to the historical event of how the French didn't really stop the uh, Hurons from attacking the British and the American colonists column. They more or less let the indigenous people attack. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. But Wes Studi, luckily, he was given an honorary Oscar Hmm. two years ago. Oh, really? I don't think I remembered that. Yeah, uh, it was not during the Oscar ceremony. Of course not. It's before it's at the governor's awards, which okay. take place earlier. But yeah, like 28 years too late. It's the perfect villain performance in that. Yes, you empathize with him. You get his viewpoint, but he's also horrifying. And whenever he's interacting uh, with any of the other characters, you're afraid for them yeah. because he is ruthless. He is stone faced. Uh, <laughs> he is clearly good at fighting. And one of the biggest well, not the biggest change, but a change that I think is major is that how he kills Colonel Monroe. So mm-hmm. in the book, Monroe lives all the way right. through, which lame, like super lame, yeah. uh, mm. even though that happened in real life. Uh, but in the movie, Magua cuts out his heart while he's alive and holds it in his hands like as a trophy. I mean, talk about incredible. I uh, thought that was very silly. Actually, I thought that it, yeah, I thought that that was such an overblown, I guess, portrait of savagery that I don't think it's it's very historically accurate. Okay, so yeah, so that's something that's interesting we get from Magua. We do get some background about why he wants revenge on Monroe. And I think that is the point of him being a complex character is Monroe introduced alcohol into Magua's life. He made him into an alcoholic and then he, that drove him out of his community. And then he was punished physically for being an alcoholic by Monroe. And I think that's a really interesting backstory for him. And so he wants revenge on Monroe, basically the whole movie. And that's why he's going after his daughters is to make him like feel that sense of isolation that he felt when he was removed from his Huron community or exiled from his Huron community. Hmm. Um, I don't love that heart ripping scene because I, or I feel like that's just so beyond, I just think it's, it's a little bit too much like savagery that, Uh Mm -hmm. that I, I don't love. I don't think that's historically accurate. I'd be interested to know what some indigenous people feel about that. Um, because mm-hmm. we already have a lot of historically inaccurate um, portraits of them scalping people and killing women and children, which wasn't necessarily typical of communities like that. So I would just be interested to know how they feel about that portrait. Um, I think it's enough to just like slit his throat personally, but yeah, you know, that's it's, just it, how I know. Well, it's interesting because I actually, so when I just now watched it for the episode for, for recording this, it was after I had gotten a copy of the book and had flipped through the book and read some scenes. And um, so, so many of the chapters, actually all of the chapters um, begin with some sort of epigraph, like some sort of like quote yeah. from another material. And I was struck by the fact that most of it is not all, but a lot of it is, sh- is um, Shakespearean. A lot of the epigraphs are from Shakespeare plays. And yeah. when I actually 
watch it this last time around, I didn't engage with it. I think that's really interesting, Laura, and there's there's probably something to be said for that. But I didn't think of it as a moment of savagery. I actually thought of it as being very sort of like Shakespearean villain kind of thing, which you could argue is also like there are moments where some of those villains are based on like the other like Caliban. But it made me think of Shylock. That's what I thought of. Because there are a couple the there are a couple of flesh, Merchant of right? Venice. Yeah, there are a couple of Merchant of Venice um epigraphs in the um in the in the book so i don't know that's just what i thought of it as and it is like very grand and like very but again i'm also i'm thinking about it in the context of like the mythic like hyper romantic like context of the original book so i guess in in that sense it, it landed for me because i thought it was all part of the world and also i thought of it as being like this grand moment of like villainry or po- poetic villainry uh but yeah but i guess it does if if you're thinking of like ways in which Cooper and Mann could have pushed against the potential for, you know, the Native Americans or the Hurons to be seen of as like bloodthirsty savages, essentially. Um, it, it doesn't do that because he is literally like thirsting for an opportunity to like hold his bloody heart in his hand and make him mm. suffer in the most like grotesque, gratuitous fashion. Well, and I guess that's true. That's a really good point because I didn't think of that idea of a pound of flesh that like Shakespearean idea. The other thing too, is that Magua has technically been exiled from the Huron community. And a lot of reason is because of his different approach to things that they don't feel like is like reflective of their identity and how they want to be seen. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I think it can be seen as more of like a romantic symbolism. But even that is problematic as well, because then but, you have yeah. the distinction of the noble savage versus like <laughs> exactly. the actual savage. Um, exactly. That, that is that, that has been a trope that has been used to dehumanize um, like Native Americans for, for exactly. so long. Yeah. So it's it's tough because it's like in a literature context, you want to believe that that would is like symbolic. But it's frustrating when stuff like this is used to like perpetuate those ideas and i think unfortunately that is the reality that these things perpetuate those ideas i do want to highlight though how many indigenous people were actually hired for this Mm -hmm. um production because it is really encouraging that we see so many people who are not like in brown face or something like that like there were a lot of indigenous people hired for the production so that's a that's a good sign of a little bit of progress. And not all of them are villains and not all of them are being Mm -hmm. like mowed down by like John Wayne or Gary Cooper, which is, you know, again, it's like, it's as good as it, as it can be Um, to go back to West West duty. um, And I, I should also say uh, another plug for Pat and John, their best behavior. We have an episode in which we talk about the films of Daniel day Lewis um, with our friend. uh, Yes. Young, like nineties, Daniel day Lewis with our good friend and Daniel day Lewis shall we say, aficionado, um, uh, Lily Donahue. And so I, I, you can listen to us talk more about this in there, but I, I and I talk about this in that episode, so I'm repeating myself. But the scene at the end when Alice, uh, played by uh, Joni May, really remarkable. I really love her mm-hmm. performance. I think there's a lot to really love in this, especially on multiple watches. Um, she is about to jump off the cliff because Uncas has just uh, been killed by Magua. And she's like, she's looking and she's contemplating. And that moment is really beautiful. Just like what Mm. she's doing. um, Just, just with her, her face is really incredible. Um, But Magua, like 
does this incredible gesture that I, I've seen this movie probably mm-hmm. upwards of 10 times at this point, And I never know what to do with it because like you see him lower his knife. You see him like he's, his face is still very blank and he just like, this is a an audio for, uh, medium, but you know he just like does this kind of like two fingers and he kind of beckons. like gestures, yeah, beckons her to come, and like you kind of get the sense it's like oh maybe he actually does kind of care about this person or maybe he doesn't want mm. her to kill herself. I don't know exactly what to do with it, but it's just like that ambiguity is yeah. really I think really a testament to to what West Studi is doing um, as an actor in his performance. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That one scene is qualifies him for best supporting nomination, if not win, yeah. right there for me. I completely agree. Right, and you see the anger in his face throughout the movie, but it's never overblown. Yeah, mm. it's important to note that his motivations are changed between the book and the movie. So, in the book, as Laura was saying, uh, Monroe turned him into an alcoholic and then indirectly exiled him from the Hurons for a time. In the movie, it's a much more classic kind of hollywood motivations of monroe killed his whole family and right tribe and it, that Wait, doesn't necessarily is that flip-flopped no no oh. I, yeah I, yeah i think it's yeah dan i think i think you're right okay never mind sorry yeah it's hard to keep so <laughs> that the the heart thing is problematic but i guess it speaks to also john's point of it being shakespearean in that he the most he he can't get his family back but he can since his heart was metaphorically ripped out he can now literally rip out monroe's heart but yeah uh, that just speaks to west studi's brilliance even more is that he is justified but horrifying you don't want to interact with him but it's almost more scary for him to to be unwavering in these moments mm-hmm. to just be fully steadfast in his mission and yeah we've said this a few times by now but those last 15 minutes on the ridge i mean that's an all-timer set piece yeah and the score by randy edelman and trevor jones they adapt a theme called the gale by a scottish singer and songwriter uh, dougie mclean that's his real real name dougie mclean that's like the coolest <laughs> name i've ever heard but yeah, so that the- it's technically an adaptation of, of a previous theme, but they really add a sense of melancholy to the score. And there's really only one theme throughout yeah. the whole movie. They get a lot of mileage out of it. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is a theme that is so iconic and pleasant to the ears that it is, it is both pulse pounding, but also horrifying mm-hmm. and mel- melancholic, but adventurous. It's this is a true sign of all the elements coming together in that one moment and which we really should champion Michael Mann for being able to, I feel like having, instead of having a big battle at the end, having this smaller ridge fight is such a flex and such a cool, cool way to end um, an adventure movie. You don't normally see them ended like that. Yeah. Speaking of set pieces, Props go out to whatever scout, set scout, came up with that cave with the waterfall. Mm. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Because that's so close. Mm. That's exactly what happens in the book is there's like a, Mm. they're behind this waterfall and there are two entryways and the way they escape is obviously very different and truncated in the movie. But that cave is gorgeous. My goodness. Whoever found that nailed it. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, all the cave scenes uh, were reshot because oh, I thought you were going to say they were all built. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, they're they're all reshot because apparently in the first cut it felt too forced was the note that, that I came across in my research of like the emotion. Oh, so that was the last thing filmed was Daniel Day-Lewis saying, I'll find you. And then jumping through the water. Hmm. You cool. know, rewatching it um, this past time, I just now, I just then picked up on, so there's that, that scene where Alice is like walking toward the waterfall and Uncas like grabs her and like kind of pulls her away from it. And I've always found that scene kind of strange, but I realized this past time watching it that there's actually a scene that sort of foreshadows it when like they first, uh, when the gang like first gets together and they're going to Fort William Henry. Um, there's a scene where they're walking up like a stream or like they, there's like, a, there is like a, a, a small waterfall and like Alice sort of like stops and like begins to like look at it and sort of like consider it. And you see Uncas, like you see a shot of him looking at her and watching her. Uh, because like I watched it with my with my girlfriend um, not too long ago and she one of her complaints was that she thought like the relationship between Alice and Uncas was like a little undercooked and that it sort of like came out of nowhere which I, I think there is an argument for that for sure but I think if you rewatch it you kind of do see like little sprinklings of it and little hints of it um, but yeah I just I thought that was interesting because like you sort of like there's a way in which you can watch this movie and really track like the moment or how Alice sort of like begins as this very like vivacious innocent character who has a lot of like excitement for life and adventure and stuff like that and then you kind of see her start to really just like lose that as she witnesses all these horrors um and starts to lose people and you know just goes through all these like terrible experiences um so a plug for rewatching the movie and keeping an eye out for um both the wonderful work that jody may does but also like those moments that kind of foreshadow her and Uncas's um, eventual fate. Wow, that's super interesting. Yeah, I'll have to keep an eye out for that. I didn't catch that at all. But it is important to note that in the book, Alice, I, we said this before, but yeah, Alice survives in the book, dies in the movie, mm-hmm. and then Cora dies in the book, survives in the movie. Pat, I was wondering if you had any opinions on Duncan Hayward, the British soldier general that was along with him i feel like laura and i were unintentionally laughing at a few of his line deliveries i feel like you could skewer the actor or praise him i don't really have a problem with his performance i mean i like that he's like this sort of uh metaphor for like the british empire and like the hubris we do things this way and he's kind of uh and he kind of becomes like uh, a cock (laughs) <laughs> and then at the end, he kind of redeems himself in a very – he was never going to be the her, the heroic fighter, but he does a very selfless deed at the end. And, you know, I think uh, Hawkeye kills him that way because he respects him. Yeah. He puts him out of his misery because he respects him as a, as a man by the end and, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, 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 the line readings don't really like stick out. I mean, yeah, they're a bit stilted, but like, I kind of just buy that as like the character. Sure. You know, yet all those scenes with like them drinking tea on the table, <laughs> you know, when he's like courting her, field. it's just very funny juxtaposition-y stuff for the frontier. 
mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's kind of his his shtick. But yeah. he redeems himself at the end. It's a good it's a good little character arc, I think. Him being burned alive is quite visceral. Quite quite something. Yeah, I would I had two things to say about that. The first one was the first thing that I said I think after we stopped the movie was like no laughs in that two hours. <laughs> like there's yeah. absolutely nothing to laugh at except there were there are a couple situational humor things like the one that when they're having tea in the middle of that field that's mm. like so british and the yeah, way that yeah, they're yeah. interacting and the way that cora eventually turns his offer for marriage down which is very sad and in the book yeah. it's very different because he actually but she's wants a frontier girl. It, she's, yeah, I know. she's about that real life you know what i mean he's some <laughs> posh you know, educated by creepos at Eton and, you know, <laughs> Oxford and Harrow, all those filthy little places that create those demons that mm. run, run all over the world and stuff. She and can colonized. smell it on him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She can smell it on him because she's an American girl. Yeah. At her you know heart, I mean? yeah. Absolutely. She's an American gal. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, yeah, that's it's sad, but there were a couple situational humor things where I think maybe man was just poking fun at like the British formality. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, maybe the only chuckles that I got out of were from his sure. resistance to that American idealism that yeah. is cropping up amongst the colonists that he sort of sees. Um, the other thing, which is not necessarily connected to this movie but we have been watching the Underground Railroad for mm. the podcast, and it's taken us a long time to get through that show because it's extremely intense. Speaking of no laughs, right. um, <laughs> but it's really interesting that this character is burned exactly in the same way as a character in that book. Oh, um, I had just watched that scene in Underground Railroad, and it's almost exactly the same, sort of crucified with the arms. Yeah, you know, yeah. spread um, yeah. on like a wooden pyre. And it's really traumatic. It's very traumatic yeah. in Underground Railroad, especially because it's done for entertainment to yeah. and when he slave. and when he and when he drops his head because he's shot. Yeah. His body was, goes limp. That's yeah. that's, that's pretty pretty visceral. It was really visceral. visceral in the show in Underground Railroad. And it's just so heartbreaking that like that was done for entertainment again in punishment because that slave had run away and to see that happen exactly the same way to this person who had been able to have like a character arc and had you know sacrificed himself for the good of his sort of team and that he had someone to put him out of his misery was just such a different storyline for me to like juxtapose so soon after each other that it stuck out to me. Yeah, I think it was just the difference between those two storylines. But that's all I had to say about it since we just watched that show. Yeah, no, and the, well, and that that scene, uh, yeah, it, in which Duncan is burned alive and and Hawkeye shoots, and that was something that I remember really like sticking out to me, watching it as like a 10, 11 year old, just like him saving him by shooting him was just like, yeah, I just it's really it's really beautiful and re- really well done, and it's it's just like sequenced and blocked and edited really 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 well mm-hmm. yeah a huge change from the book as well yes mm-hmm. yes an effective yep. one too mm-hmm. yeah definitely all right team we're nearing the end but of course we have plenty of time for some final thoughts so what i'm looking for is your 
overall feeling of how Michael Mann adapts the book and then any other additional thoughts that you have. Yeah. The the floor is open. You know, I was really glad that I did a little bit of reading on the book um, before I, before I watched it and prep for the episode. Cause there were a couple things that actually like I was able to make sense of from the movie in terms of like, why it's shot in a certain way or why it's sequenced in a certain way in, in ways that I think are meant to create like a more appropriately filmic experience, but also plays homage to what Cooper does with the book and what he was interested in as a writer, specifically um, the shots of, of nature. So like you have that opening shot, which like you cannot say enough about, about mm-hmm. that. Like you have, you have the music playing and then you have like a, a little like biographical thing or like, you know, a, some some exposition that says this is what was going on at the time. French and Indian War, yada, yada, yada. And then there's uh, it, it fades to black and then you have the title uh, screen or the title card, which is, you know, all over black as well. And then you have that beautiful shot of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Just the color palette is really remarkable. It's just like these like these grays and these blues so that kind of like tells you what kind of movie it's going to be and how much of a focus on the land there is going to be and you have various shots throughout the movie that really focus on that and i read this from the uh, again this is again from the introduction by wayne franklin to the um, john harvard library edition but he wrote uh cooper cooper was especially known for his skill as a scenic artist a painter adept at portraying the rugged natural scenes of the American forest. And so I think that kind of goes along with the way that man, the way that he has like the, the landscape and like the natural world sort of like function as like a character in the movie. Um, You know, people always like talk about like in like Woody Allen movies or other movies like that have New York in which like, you know, New York is kind of like the fifth character in the movie or like, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of a cliche at this point, but I think it's, it's accurate to, to the way that the land functions in last of the Mohicans. Um, there's really like a sort of like, it's like a love letter in some sense to like the land at the time and sort of like the unadulterated or less adulterated like version of the American landscape. Um, there's like a sense of like romanticism that I think, Cooper was very much interested in, especially as someone who was he was starting to see that start to really sort of like slip away, just like with industrialism and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and again, I think Mike, I think Michael Mann really, really honors that. Um, so that was just something I, I wanted to mention that really jumped out at me as I was rewatching it for the sake of the episode. Interesting. I love it. <laughs> it's me. It's me. It's everything I need. It's everything. Might be the most influential work of art in my life. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Can, can I actually so much awesome. I've taken? Can I ask you a question, Pat? Yeah. How does this? Because I have not, admittedly, seen very many Michael Mann films. How does this? Mm. And this, I realize this could be like another forty-five minute long episode. But how <laughs> does this either like cohere or not cohere or do something different in the context of Michael Mann as a director. He loves doomed romance. Mm, Okay. So the doomed romance is definitely there. He loves things that are tactile. Okay. He loves a real lived in world, whether it's, I'm thinking about the smoke in this movie reminds me of the sparks of the welding torch when 
James Caan is breaking into safes in Thief. Mm-hmm. Or I'm thinking about, like, the guns and the reloading in Heat. Mm-hmm. Or even something like... um like Jamie Foxx's cab in Collateral. Okay. It's like those tactile set pieces. It's funny. There's like a there's like a duel at the end of Collateral. He loves a duel too. A good nemesis. Mm-hmm. Nemesi. You know, like Hawkeye and Magua. I'm thinking about Pacino and De Niro and Heat. I'm thinking about um, Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise at the end of Collateral. Mm-hmm. Um. But also, I think the natural setting is different for him because typically his movies take place in, you know, urban environments. Yeah. You know, um, like he's typically in cities. Right. And um, Last of the Mohicans is this like kind of like gorgeous detour. Um, And I think you're so right, John, with the sort of not only Fenmore's Cooper's interest in romanticism, but, you know, that, those kinds of paintings, those romantic paintings, of which there are many in the Met, I mean, people around this time, and even in places like Scotland, you know, the the painters were going to, like, the Isle of Skye and mm-hmm. Shetland, and they were kind of, like, decamping from the cities to make these sort of beautiful epics that they think would get them, you know, cause like really like nature in those paintings and in the literatures is a metaphor for God. Right. And, um, I also think that this movie is really, really smart when it comes to communication, especially the, the scene with the, the chief and Magua and there's like, five languages being spoken. Yeah, it's incredible. And I don't think that that little thing gets talked about enough. Because you have to understand is that like it truly has always he the United States has like always been a melting pot and that kind of vitality has always been here. And I think um yeah, it's a really special movie. Yeah, and a great masterclass just in in how to adapt something that yeah. is not at first glance super adaptable um, to the to the big screen. You know, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have so much to respond to because I I completely agree with that take. <laughs> um, I also didn't quite get to talk about how. Yeah, how the book is called "The Last of the Mohicans." And I think that's a really interesting choice. And it's something that sort of sets my expectations for what Cooper wanted to say with the book. And Mm. I think like as modern Americans, you know, we sort of look back to this romantic time and we think about like, oh, you know, the, the wilderness nature has been lost through, you know, industrialization and the technology boom that we're still sort of going through. But what makes me really sad and what makes, I think the very end of the movie even more poignant for me is how much indigenous cultures lost so quickly and how much, you know, we talk about never having nature back or never having these landscapes back. Like that culture being lost is such a, such a whole, I mean, there's like not even a word to, 
describe yeah. what a loss that is to Native communities. And so that idea that um, there's so much that's lost when the community is gone. And so mm. to name the book after the fate of Chingachgook's son is mm. for me like the beginning of a conversation yeah. of mm. even just trying to like you know rediscover languages and cooking indigenous cooking is gone indigenous hunting mm. is gone indigenous structures of government are gone and like these are things that it's just we won't get back so i think like just the title of the book to me is a is the start of a really interesting conversation that mm. is like an ongoing interesting. thing um, and I, I think you're totally right about the the opening of the movie is that hunt and people don't hunt that way. Like I even, like to even think that the hunter, hunt the hunt represents pre Columbus America. Hmm. Hmm. Like hard yeah. back to it. Yes, yes, I know, I know. Hawkeye's white. I understand that. But what I'm saying is, the hunt is pre Columbus America. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't have that take until we started talking about it. Because um, I think it is really key because this like this is sort of the cutoff between before and after, like, you know, after Ameri the American Revolution, like that's really kind of like, all right, American expansion, Louisiana Purchase, like, mm, yeah. you know, we're kind of leaving this in the past and Anyway, so that was the one thing that I wanted to say. The second thing I wanted to say was I'm so glad that you brought up the landscape because what it really reminded me of was Emma because Emma was made, the, the 2020 movie Emma was mm -hmm. filmed in a way to reflect that pastoral artwork um, mm. of that era. And the whole idea behind pastoral paintings, which was like, the thing in the 1820s through 1850s and maybe even a little later was the romance of this pastoral perfect pre-industrialization england and that's totally reflected in this movie there's a gorgeous shot where i literally told danny like oh my god that looks exactly like emma where there's a bridge and yes. we see the bridge reflected in the water and so that good carriage is going over the water oh my goodness so i lost my breath at that <laughs> shot it was so gorgeous and i think it exactly exemplifies what john was talking about like how fenimore cooper lived in that world of like romance and he wanted to conjure that world in his literature and so to be able to like there's see actually that a, there's amazing. actually a funny way to, yeah. there's a little meta daniel day lewis thing too because he was doing a lot of british period dramas oh yeah so he would have been in the carriage in the 80s he did a ton of these movies in on bbc in the 80s hmm. that's also interesting to think that now he's like you know in the thick of it in the mud yeah getting it out the mud <laughs> in the words of the great American poet, Kevin Gates, you know? <laughs> uh, do you know his work, the poet Kevin Gates? Nope, I'm not familiar. No. One of the best poets. Contemporary American society. You should look him up. Next to John LeMay. Yeah, yeah. That's two a, different lads, yeah, but two very, very, same. Very, yeah. very different uh, modalities yeah. and, and mechanisms. The, the joke there is that he's a, he's a rapper. He's a hip-hop artist. Oh, nice. uh, poets in their own right. But he is great. Poetry. It is poetry. Yes. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Lyrics are poetry. Anyway, so those are those are I think mm. my final thoughts. Um, take them or leave them, whatever. I'll Danny, take them. I'll take, take them. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this is always the dilemma of guest episodes: is that we could talk for another two hours, um, yeah. but alas, we must we must stop now. So. We're not editing for a week, and so our listeners uh, don't have a three-hour episode. Um, I know whenever we come on other people's podcasts, they always say, oh, this episode is a little long for us. And it's like, I know. That's the, that's just sure. when you talk it's about a book and a movie. It's true. It, yeah, that's just, that's just the biz, It's just life baby. on the frontier. <laughs> yeah, amen. So, um, yeah, Pat and John, let's get some final plugs for you. Where can people find you if you wish to be found? Um, you can find me uh, on Instagram at John LeMay, J-O-N-L-E-M-A-Y. You can find me on Twitter at Yon LeMay, Y-A-W-N-L-E-M-A-Y. Um, you can find uh, my writing and shit like that uh, on my link tree, um, which you just type in John LeMay link tree. It's also you can find it on my social media. And yeah, that's where you can find me. What about you, Patty Cakes? You can find me on Instagram at uh, P-S-T-A-N-N underscore. And you can find our podcast uh, yeah, wherever our podcast. Pat and John and their best behavior, uh, wherever you get your podcast. We're currently on a hiatus because life is really hectic for the two of us in, in different ways. Um, but we have 80 episodes at this point, um, uh, one of which uh, features uh, Danny and Laura talking about favorite book to movie adaptations one of which also talks about young dale day lewis but there's a lot of stuff out there i think it's a pretty good hang um you you could definitely do worse so so check that out wherever you get your podcasts thank you john but also keep my fiance's name out of your fucking mouth <laughs> um i've been waiting to oh, i've been God. waiting to no, joke. It's great uh, oh and i gotta thanks. say thank you you know what I, we, we we talked about this off air but i so appreciate the two of you um uh, being willing to let uh, Pat and I officiate and MC your wedding. Um, so, oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Thank you guys so much. We're really oh, yeah. excited for that. Thank um, you guys so much. Yeah, everyone will be sure to live stream it. So keep keep your eyes posted for that. Um, like and subscribe. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll be a good time. What could go wrong? Truly, what could go wrong? That that's a great segue into why we are also on a pretty extended hiatus. We're getting married next month, so we've Hell been yeah. in the throes of some pretty good intense. Luck planning um we're picking up our marriage license next week which is pretty insane um, but yeah it's been tough to keep up with reading and watching um so this no, is you got big stuff big stuff planned yeah, yeah so thanks for being patient listeners yes we really appreciate everyone listening uh we'll be back in two weeks uh with our episode on the underground railroad which is our season finale and we're going to take a break to uh tie the knot but pat and john this was an honor uh again we could talk for two <laughs> more hours and i'm sure we will later on down the line yeah but everyone sure. check out pat and john on their best behavior but they're on their worst behavior secretly mm -hmm. That's true. and thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next one <laughs>